I was at a funeral the other day. A guy I went to school with died too young. I looked around at all the people crying and wondered what they were really crying about. Were they crying for him or for themselves? Thinking about how their lives were going to be different without him? Or thinking about their own mortality? Then I started reflecting on when I get emotional. What's really happening? Most of the time it's about my own discomfort, my own pain, my own heartache. I wonder what breaks God's heart. What does he mourn about? As a father, my most unselfish tears are for my kids. I would imagine God is no different, that he grieves for us. So maybe I should pay more attention when I'm watching the six o'clock news as to what is probably hurting God's heart. And I should try to do something about that, starting with me and how much I break his heart. Well, greetings to all of you who are meeting here at uh, Central Campus and also those who are tuning in from uh, our various uh, regionals in different parts of Calgary, including Airdrie, Bridgeland, and in Northwest uh, Campus meeting at uh, the Crowfoot Theatres, as well as all of those of you who are uh, part of our house church network and those watching online. Why don't we all join together and say, hi there. Good. All right. A number of years ago, the editors of Psychology Today did a survey of its more than 50,000 subscribers to determine what makes people happy. They found that there is considerable confusion in North America about what constitutes happiness. They discovered that the amount of money that you have, the, how famous you are, uh, what you do for a living, where you live on the planet, being married or single, do not determine whether or not you're happy. They discovered that there are people in Hawaii who are as miserable as people in Alaska <laughs> and Calgary. <laughs> Thought I'd throw that in. Just remember that. There are people in Hawaii who are as miserable as some people here in Calgary. Anyways, now research also tells us that the overarching consuming desire of more than 85% of us in North America is to be happy and for our loved ones to be happy. And yet, is it not true that happiness and contentment seems to elude most people today? Well, we're in a series on the Beatitudes in which Jesus is describing the attitudes and the behaviors of those who are part of his kingdom. And he says that those who are part of his kingdom are blessed or happy or perhaps, perhaps more accurately, truly joyful. Now, at first glance, this is surprising because the attitudes and the behaviors of God's kingdom uh, uh, are polar opposite to man's earthly kingdom. 
For example, in the first beatitude we looked at last time, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, which is counterintuitive to the mindset of our culture. In our society, the person who is perceived as being blessed, who is perceived as being successful, is the person who's strong and rich, powerful, independent, confident in his or her own abilities, not those who are needy and dependent and desperate for God. And yet Jesus says, unspeakable joy comes to the poor in spirit. To those who acknowledge that they need God and are incapable of living victoriously without him. Deeply satisfied, said Jesus, are those who humble themselves and admit that they are crippled in their capacity to have healthy relationships. Now, the second beatitude that we're looking at today is no different. Matthew 5.4 reads this way, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus says that joy comes to those who mourn. Really? For most people in our society, this doesn't make any sense at all. One person translated this verse to say, happy are the unhappy. How in the world are you happy when you're unhappy? What kind of upside-down world is this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? How can happiness be experienced through grief? In our way of thinking, mourning and happiness are opposites. Mourning smacks of pain, not of joy. You know, when I think of pain, I immediately think of the dentist. Kind of just tells you something about the wonderful experiences I had in the dentist chair growing up. You know, you can do word association games with me. If you say milk, I'll probably say cow. If you say eggs, I'll probably say chicken. If you say pain, I will say dentist every time. <laughs> and you know, it doesn't matter how much modern dentists try to make it pleasant for you. When you walk into their offices, they have smiling receptionists. They have pleasant, peaceful music. Chairs that give you a massage before they come in and torture you. The reality is, the reality is, you know, sticking a big four-inch needle in your mouth has a way of draining every bit of happy from you, at least from me. And let me just say that if you happen to be one of those people who delights in going to the dentist who actually falls asleep in the dentist chair while they're poking, drilling, and putting large foreign objects in your mouth. You're sick, okay? <laughs> I mean, something is really wrong with you. You need therapy. But my point is, for most of us, mourning and joy, they just don't fit together. They are in opposition to each other. And yet Jesus ties grief to joy in this beatitude. Which leads me to ask, where is the blessedness in mourning? How does joy come to those who mourn? In the scriptures we see at least three ways that joy comes to those who mourn. 
One way the joy comes to those who mourn is are those who allow God to transform their mourning into something good. To mourn means intense sorrow. It's not, you know, some people, you know, often communicate, you know, sadness and sorrow over trivial things. And so often in our culture, um, we have so much that we actually get quite shallow about the things we're sorrowful about. Like, you know, oh, I wasn't able to go to the hockey game. You know, or we lost out on the bid. Someone outbid us on the house that we were really hoping to get. Or we weren't able to have ketchup with our fries, you know. That's not what mourning is. To mourn is very intense sorrow that is usually associated with some kind of loss, the loss of a parent or a spouse or a child or a good friend. It could also involve the breakdown of a relationship, the loss of trust in someone who's very near and and dear to you. When David lost his son Absalom, Even though Absalom betrayed him, the scriptures still say that David wept bitterly. When Abraham lost his wife Sarah, again the scriptures record that he wept bitterly. We've all faced this one way or another, and if we haven't yet, we will because death is a part of life. When death comes, weeping, mourning, grieving are really gifts from God for they release the pain that we are feeling and really help us with the healing process. When death comes, we receive comfort from God's word, which reminds us that because Jesus died and rose again, so will all of those who die in him. When their eyes close in death here on earth, they open in the presence of Jesus in glory. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. We believe Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with those who have died in him. As citizens of God's kingdom, we find comfort in the midst of death and our mourning. Because death does not have the final say for those who die in the Lord. Amen? No, God gets the last word. And the last word, if you really think about it, is the hope of heaven. Heaven changes how we grieve. Oh, we still feel pain and sadness, but we take great comfort in knowing that we will see our loved ones again in that place where they're will be no more tears or sorrow or pain. You see, knowing this truth brings comfort because we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve for a time, yes, but not forever. We do not give up. We don't withdraw and quit or stop living. Rather, we allow God to turn our mourning into something good. We allow God to change us, to make us more sensitive and compassionate to the needs of others, and to extend the hope and the comfort we have received to others. 
I want you to listen carefully to Mary's story about real inward pain. Mary mourned not only over a number of losses in her life, but also over what could have been. And yet, here is a woman who, instead of growing bitter, allowed God to transform her mourning into a life filled with hope and a desire to extend that hope to others. Just watch this. When I am tending to the flowers in the gardens, I am filled with an immense sense of peace. At times, I wonder if this is what heaven will be like. Through reading and meditating on scripture, I have now realized that God has always been there for me. He has truly comforted me, but I didn't always know this. The farm, that's where I grew up. The farm, it's really just two words describing some place outside the city, but not for me. For me, the farm was a place that evoked the feelings of death and sadness. It was a place of mourning. Before I was 11 years old, two sisters died and three grandparents. I struggled with this loss. It is hard for a kid at that age to process death, and I felt like I was surrounded by it. My father was an angry man, and when he got angry, he got really angry. I remember sitting on the stairs, cringing with fear of my dad. You see, he had his favorite children. I was not one of them not even close. I wanted to grieve, but that wasn't what Dad wanted. He wouldn't allow it. He let me know I had responsibilities, that there was no time for grieving. So I became quiet and started to withdraw. As soon as I could get off the farm, I did. I left home lonely, resentful, and broke. I got married while in university and had two beautiful children. And then my marriage fell apart. I was fearful. I didn't know what would happen to me and my kids. I had hit rock bottom. It was during one of my life's lowest points that I started to witness the Lord's working in the life of my son. He was on fire for the Lord. He would read me scripture with so much enthusiasm. And it was this enthusiasm that led me to want God's love and comfort in my life. I decided to attend Center Street Church. The sermons were positive and affirming. I attended divorce care and the singles group. God had begun to heal me. However, I still needed to deal with my past. God also led me to the Cowboy Trail Church in Cochrane. It was at this small rural church that God started to help me deal with my past sorrows. And he was doing this in the country, a place where I had experienced so much sadness. A friend of mine began telling people about the changes he was seeing in me. Others had noticed as well. I began to open up and trust people. I forgave and asked for repentance. This started the restoration of my childhood pain on the farm. God truly was comforting me. I am at peace now. I am no longer in a place of mourning. 
I am now focused on what breaks God's heart. I have served at Mustard Seed, and I am presently serving at Freedom Session and in the gardens here at Center Street. Because of what God has done in my life, I fully intend to live out my faith and share His love for others by showing those who are mourning that there is hope and comfort when you abide in Him. One of my favorite scripture verses is Proverbs 3, 5-6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will direct your paths. I trusted in the Lord in my time of mourning, and He has comforted me. He is the only one that could. I feel like my life has been made new. Thank you for sharing that, Mary. You know, Gerald Mann says, Joy comes to those who have known the depths of grief, for only they can fully know the heights of joy. When we experience loss, we can get bitter, or by the grace of God and with his help, we can choose to get better. When we choose to trust the Lord and allow him to use our mourning to perform surgery on our character, to make us more sensitive and compassionate to the needs of others and the sorrows of others and more appreciative of what he has given to us. The more determined to turn our sorrows into something good, we will experience joy abundantly. Furthermore, joy comes to those who mourn over the things that break God's heart and respond to it. You know, I believe that Jesus laughed often. I believe that in part because the Bible says in Proverbs 17, 22, a cheerful heart is good medicine. In Ecclesiastes 3, 4, it says there's a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. And so I certainly hope that we will be a people of laughter in our homes, in the small groups that meet throughout the city, uh, when we gather in worship settings like this, that we will continue to be a people of laughter. Now, even though I believe Jesus laughed often, it may interest you to know that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that Jesus laughed. However, it does say more than once that he wept. One of those occasions was when his close friend Lazarus died. In John 11, we read that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus to come quickly because their brother Lazarus was very ill. However, by the time that Jesus arrived, Lazarus had already died and had already been placed in a tomb. And the Bible says when, when Jesus stood outside of Lazarus' grave, he wept. Now why would Jesus mourn when he knew he was going to bring Lazarus back again? G. Campbell Morgan suggests that Jesus wept because he knew more than anyone that this world is broken and abnormal. 
Jesus was deeply troubled. In fact, some believe that he was actually angry at this moment in time as he stood at the grave of Lazarus because he knew that pain and sorrow and death were never part of God's original plan for his creation, and it broke his heart. So let me ask you, what is it that breaks your heart? Does your heart break over the things that break the heart of God? You know, over the years, I've seen firsthand the plight of the poor, the orphan, the sick, in various parts of the world, and sometimes I witness things that just wreck me. Nothing in my life here in Canada could prepare me for what I experienced in some of those places. A few months ago, Gwen and I visited our partner churches in Ukraine, and we saw some things that just made us weep. We visited a little 11-year-old, beautiful, blonde-eyed girl, one of our daughter churches was reaching out to. This little girl lived with her father and who was struggling with alcoholism and her two older brothers in their late teens. And they lived in a small room that used to be a room that factory workers would bunk in during the communist era. A room perhaps 10 by 10, 12 by 12. The room had no bathroom, no kitchen, just enough room for two oversized single beds on which all four of them slept. Our partner church heard about this family shortly after the mother of this little girl was brutally murdered by another resident in that apartment building in the crude kitchen just down the hall from their place. The little girl actually witnessed what happened and from that moment on she lost her beautiful smile and rarely said a word. As we looked at her circumstances and the dire living situation she was in, Gwen and I just wanted to wrap her up and take her home with us. As upset as we were with what we saw, we rejoiced in how our church in the Ukraine is reaching out and caring not only for this young girl, but the rest of her family and how through all of this she is beginning to smile again. And laugh again. Through our partnership with Heart Ministries, this girl is now being sponsored by someone here, possibly in this church. And that little support that she's getting is ensuring that she's receiving the necessities of life. It's actually helping her entire little family. And through the love and care being extended to them by heart and by the people of our partner church, the entire family is opening up to the things of God. You know what breaks our heart even more than this is the awareness that this little girl is only one of thousands who live in similar, if not worse, conditions and have no support at all. Whenever I return from some of these poverty-stricken areas, I find myself struggling with hypocrisy in my own life. And the life of so many in our Western culture who are so preoccupied with lesser things, temporary things, who find it so hard to give generously and yet somehow find a way to always upgrade our homes, our cars, our technology, stay in fashion and shop till we drop. 
Brian Wilkerson says he saw a bumper sticker that said it best. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. When we hear about little children working 12 to 14 hours a day in sweatshops and diamond mines, when we hear about young women being sold into slavery as part of a sex trade industry, how can we as Christ followers not be outraged? If we're not, it's because we're not paying attention. We're not paying attention to the voice of God who's trying to get our attention. We're, we're closing the blinds. We're changing the channel. We're falling asleep in sermons like this because we just don't want to hear. Now, folks, please understand that God never intended for us to take on the burdens of the entire world on our shoulders. And I say that because so often we look at the staggering needs of the world and we say, how can I do anything to help with all these needs? And we tend as a result to do nothing. Paul said this one thing I do, this one thing I do. And I believe God's saying to every one of us what is at least the one thing you will do. After the first service, I had a young woman, a young mother come up to me. We'll just call her Pam. Pam told me about how she was an orphan in a little orphanage somewhere in Asia. And there was a woman somewhere in that country who prayed that God would use her to love just one person to him. And that woman came and worked in that orphanage and she ended up loving Pam and then adopting Pam. And Pam now knows Jesus, has a family of her own, talking about possibly adopting other children who don't have parents. And all that's a result because there was a woman who said, Lord, use me to, to make a difference in one person's life. One person's life. I guess I, I'm just simply asking, what have we witnessed personally? What we, have we read about? What have we heard talked about? Have, have we made an effort to even journey to impoverished regions here in Canada or in other places of the world, even just to get a sense of the needs that are there? Have we heard, have we seen something that has caused us to mourn and grieve deeply about something that we know grieves the heart of Jesus? Something that has created a firestorm within us that says, I can't stand it anymore. I have to do something. And make no mistake, I'm not just talking about the needs of people in other parts of the world. As important as that is, I'm also talking about mourning about the spiritual needs at home. Because here at home, yes, people are well-fed, generally speaking, and well-clothed, generally speaking. Those aren't the issues. But your neighbor... 
children who are coming here to this place, to our regionals, many of them don't know Jesus and they are as spiritually in need of Jesus as any child in the world who may be impoverished, but they still need Jesus. In fact, the work is more difficult here because they've got everything and they think they don't need Jesus. You know what causes me to mourn here at home? I grieve over the fact that so much of what the Bible says is true and right is considered wrong, peculiar, and outdated by our culture. I grieve over the fact that so many of us Christians have become masters at teaching the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. We become defenders of biblical truth and authority against the subtle influences of things like the New Age movement and so forth, which I am supportive of. We need to take the authority and the truth of Scripture seriously. But you see, the issue is we give ourselves permission at the same time while we're defending the truth and the authority of God's Word to rationalize away and explain away the fact that we don't do what Jesus calls us to do. We spend most of our time discussing, defending the truth and the subtleties of doctrine, which is important, but... When it comes to living out what Jesus says, not so much. And I believe that grieves the heart of Jesus more than anything. I grieve over our tendency as Christians to give our lives to lesser things. To fail to see the eternal impact we could have in the life of our neighbors, our co-workers, or in the life of a, a small group of youth or of children if we were just to stop pursuing the temporary counterfeit gods of this world and instead began pursuing the mission that Jesus has clearly called us to. I'm thinking of a young woman that I know who in her late teens decided to invest in the life of a small group of junior high girls. And she walked with those girls all the way through junior high and high school right into college. And she not only influenced the trajectory of their eternity, because I remember talking to one mother who said to me, I'm not sure that my daughter would be following Jesus today if it wasn't for this young woman. She not only influenced the trajectory of their eternity, but she sat with them as they worked through issues of relationships with other girls and, you know, determining, you know, what kind of characteristics should we look for in a possible boyfriend and all those kind of issues that junior high and high school girls go through. She walked with them through all of that. Partnered with these girls' parents What an incredible legacy in life. I ask you, how can anything that this life have to offer supersede the legacy of that? What could you possibly achieve? What trophy would mean more than that? Talk about joy beyond measure. 
And yet it grieves me how many, how many of us don't get it. Instead, we will give our lives to things that won't mean a hill of beans in the end. How tragic. You know what causes me to mourn here at home? Parents who will ensure their children are well-fed, well-clothed, well-educated. Who will spend hours driving their children from one sporting event to the next. Put out hundreds, if not thousands of dollars toward all of that, but who at the same time will make little effort to encourage their children's spiritual growth through their own example, through making it central in their family life. Parents who will drop their children off at children's church here, but see no compelling reason to join in and help them in their spiritual formation. It was about two years ago that I decided I was going to help out in one of the classes of our children's ministry. And the one I chose was the one that my granddaughter was attending. Ella was two at the time. And so I sat down around this table with all these other little people. And as that hour went by, that hour and 15 minutes or 90 minutes, however long it was, I learned so much about how to communicate as a grandparent, how to communicate spiritually with my granddaughter. You see, I, I mean, I, I think I relate fairly well to all you grown-ups. I can relate fairly well to youth. Not so much with kids, little kids. But it was so neat to be able to see these little children, two, two and a half years old, bow their heads and pray about mom and dad and ask God to bless grandpa and grandma. To hear them being taught little simple concepts of scripture, little stories of scripture. To see their growth begin. And as I left that I said to myself, if I was a parent of a little child, or for that matter, a grandparent of a four-year-old and wasn't preaching most every weekend, I'd be in there often. What an opportunity for me to uh, join others in fostering the spiritual growth of my grandchild or my child. If I was a parent of a teenager... I would, I would call them together. I'd call my teenager and my family together, asking them to pray with me about how we might begin to reach out to our neighbors, how we might serve in our neighborhood, how we might maybe start a ball hockey um, uh, event once a week so that we get to know our neighbors. I'd want to do this together as a family. I would talk to the small group that I'm part of about joining with the small group that my teenage son or daughter's in, that we come together and we reach out together in our community, maybe with other small groups and making a lasting impact in that community. 
I guess what I'm saying is if, if you're not mourning about anything, if you're just coasting and then the only thing that's on your mind is about, man, I hope I can get that, that new iPhone that just come out, you know? I mean, if the thing that makes your adrenaline flow is lining up for, you know, half a day to get the latest iPhone, you're mourning for the wrong thing. If you're not mourning about anything, I'm wondering, are you listening to the voice of God? Are you going as Jesus calls us to go and exposing yourself to the needs of the poor, the disadvantaged, to the needs of your neighbors, the spiritual needs of children and youth and adults who are coming right to us? Joy comes to those who mourn over that which breaks God's heart and they respond to it. I'm telling you, when you start seeing your child come alive in Jesus because you've made that a priority, when you start seeing a neighbor or a friend at work come alive in Jesus because you asked Jesus to use you in some small way, you will know joy beyond measure. Because we're talking about eternal stuff, not temporary stuff that will fade. And then thirdly, joy comes to those who mourn over their sin and repent. I believe this is at the very heart of what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's not just what's wrong with our world that breaks our hearts. It's what's wrong with us. Fundamentally, the mourning Jesus is referring to here in the second beatitude is not mourning over the loss of someone that we love as, as important and precious and special as that is. It's mourning over our own sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, we read this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is, like I said earlier, mourning over lesser things, selfish things. Godly sorrow is grieving over the sin in my life and how destructive it is. It's facing the lies that we tell in order to save face. It's the hurtful things that we say and do to the people that we love. It's the gossip that we spread that ruins relationships. It's the greed. It's the envy. It's the trashing of our sexuality rather, rather than the treasuring of our sexuality. It's the worship of counterfeit gods rather than the true God that causes us to cry out the way that Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me, I am undone. Andy Stanley says, these days we tend to talk a lot about mistakes rather than sinning. He says, the truth is, we're not just mistakers, we're sinners, and there's a big difference. And he points out that a mistake is a goof-up, it's an error, it's a regret, and you apologize for a mistake, but you don't mourn over a mistake. 
The mourning that Jesus is talking about here is facing the truth about ourselves and acknowledging it before a holy God. As long as we deny that we are sinners, we can't enter the kingdom of heaven and we won't experience the joy and the freedom of the Lord. As long as we try to find comfort through alcohol, gambling, shopping, sexual immorality, entertainment, food, overwork, rather than just coming clean with God and repenting, momentary comfort at best will be ours. And we'll only end up with greater addiction. It is only when we finally face the truth about our sin that we are ready to be saved from it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Comfort comes through forgiveness. Brian Wilkerson says, if you are a mistaker, all you can do is try harder. If you are a sinner... All you can do is repent. Billy Graham says, Repentance is not weeping with self-pity. It is not remorse for our sins that have been found out. It is entirely possible, he says, to be deeply sorry, sorry because we have been caught in our sin and our sin has been made public and we weep bitterly over it, but that does not necessarily mean that we've repented. Because you see, true repentance is turning from sin. It is a conscious, deliberate decision to leave sin behind. A conscious turning to God with a commitment to follow His will for our lives. It is a change of direction. It is changing one's attitude and surrendering to His will. And friends, when we genuinely repent, we will be comforted because we will experience the joy of forgiveness. We will experience the joy of, of being set free from the regrets of the past and being united fully in our relationship with Jesus. We will experience actually the joy that David experienced. Remember when he tried to hide his sin with Bathsheba and he was, he was just falling apart emotionally, trying to cover it all up? Finally, he came clean with God. He repented of his sin. And in Psalm 32, he says, How blessed, it's interesting he uses these words, how blessed, how joyful is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Would you please bow your head? Close your eyes. This has been a hard message, but I want to remind you that Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. He came to save you by dying on the cross, not only to pay for your sins and my sins, but to make it possible for us to be forgiven. How grieved are you over the things that break the heart of God? 
What has the Spirit of God been putting his finger on in your life and saying, hey, what about this area of your life? When Jesus talks about mourning over our sin, he's talking about facing our sin. He's talking about facing our selfishness head on, not denying it, not trying to escape from it, not trying to blame others for it. What he's really saying is mourning over our sin is coming to that place where we say, this is wrong. This is hurting me. This is messing up my relationship with my spouse, my relationship with my children, with my parents. Most importantly, it's, it's having a, a negative effect on my relationship with God. Mourning over sin means I acknowledge my sin to God. It means I, I, I tell him I'm powerless to do this on my own, that I need him. And coming to him and casting myself on his mercy and grace and repenting of my sin and of my self-sufficiency. What do you need to repent of? What sin is killing your relationships? What sin is killing you on the inside? Friend, it's your call. We're going to wait for just a few moments, but I invite you to make your way up here and to be set free in Jesus and walk out of here forgiven. Forgiven and set free. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That promise is for you and for me. The people next to you won't mind if you just slip out of your seat and make your way up here to be set free. And I want to encourage you to do that right now as we just wait for a few moments. Uh, prayer partners, pastors, small group leaders, if you would just make your way up, just be available. If any of the people who've come forward would like to just have someone pray with them, please be available to them. Some of you may need to make your way up here even as we wrap up this service. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you, Lord, for what you have done in the lives of each person who has come forward here. And I just, I just pray, Lord, that you will just flood them with your peace as they release whatever burdens they've been carrying, as they repent and turn around and walk a different road. I ask, oh God, that you will bless them with your joy today. For others, Lord, who are still struggling with all of this. 
I pray that your spirit will continue to just um, challenge them, Lord, to come clean with you, to allow you, Lord, to fill them and invite them into the amazing adventure you have in store for each one of us. We thank you for the truth of your word and for what you're doing in us, through us, and around us. For your honor and glory, I pray in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.